Welcome back to a brand new episode of Full Metal RPG. I'm your host, Brendan Carrion, and today we're continuing Cult Month Part 3. I am very privileged to be joined by the second half of the developer team for Cult Divinity Lost, which you've heard about a great deal on this program. Today, we have Robin Liljenberg. Robin, what up? Hi, guys. Yeah. Not so much happening in Sweden just now. It's kind of half, half semi summer, and a wasp is trying to make a nest outside my door in the house. Uh, you don't want that, man. You gotta get, you gotta, you gotta clamp down on that right away. Yeah, I know, I know. It's <laughs> kind of fast. It's really like uh, I, I took the the nest away, but now it's back and trying to do it again. So I need to like kill it fast. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's starting to look that way, man. It's like you, you tried to take the high road with it, but its insectile brain is not feeling it. <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, welcome to the show, uh, Robin. Now, you are one of the two sort of highest build credits on the inside of Cult Divinity Lost. We're super happy to have you here. And uh, today we wanted to talk a little bit about the system that's going on in Cult, because when I was talking to Petter, he... um. He said that like a lot of the system design work came from you, so I'm hoping to kind of pick your brain about that. But before we get into that, if you could kind of just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of you know, so that the so that our listeners can sort of get a sense of who you are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as you mentioned here, I'm the the one uh, the creator of the rules in Cultivant Lost, or the the hacker of the rules, maybe you could say it because uh, as some of you may know it's built on Apocalypse World uh, I'm working in the wind power industry I'm actually having a master in psychology been training a lot of mixed martial arts uh, for some years and I'm also a, a big fan of role playing games, tabletop RPGs uh, play everything a lot of Swedish games, a lot of uh, English games. I'm not so good at other languages than like English and Swedish, so I don't play like French games and German games and Japanese games if they don't translate them into English. That is. Wow, you're you're quite a Renaissance man. You've got a lot going on there. Uh, c- tell us, kind of like, so how did you get into role playing with all that going on and <laughs> that very kind of eclectic background? Like, what brought you into role playing? Uh, I was actually playing it in school, like, uh, I think it was junior high school. Uh, we, I, I didn't, my, my language teacher didn't think I was uh, capable to learn French. So they put me in this kind of class for stupids. And there they were playing role-playing games. So that's my, like, <laughs> my road into role-playing games. <laughs> Wow! Well, all right, all right. What was the what was the game? What were people playing back then? Uh, oh, this game is not known. I think it's, it's it was called Secret Service. It was like, I guess it was a kind of hack someone had like made up on the internet. And those kids I was going with, like twelve year olds, they had downloaded that from the internet and like printed it in school and in some 
way they they managed to convince the teachers to let us play in, in the <laughs> at school time something they 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 shut off really quickly when they heard what we were like doing when we were playing <laughs> so but it was so so this was kind of like an action oriented game like uh uh cops and like government agents and stuff yeah i think the first two years every uh, adventure we were playing was about some guys with guns transporting a suitcase or like a portfolio from one space to another location and like fighting people on the way to that and it usually ended with classic. like half of us dying or something that's just completely classic yeah i love it, I love it. <laughs> so uh after after like you know uh, immersing yourself in role playing and stuff how did you make the transition into design well i think my i started by modifying the games I were playing because as most game masters I guess you, you search for this like perfect mix between system and story so when I found a new system I liked I always tried to modify it into the games I liked and by hacking and modifying eventually I had so much material uh, on my computer that I already have almost a game there and then uh, I had uh, luck, you could say, to uh, fall into the, those guys, Petter and Marco at Helmgast. And they convinced me that we should create a game of my notes. And uh, that seed was the thing growing into Cult of Interlust. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. So tell me more about that. Like, how did that meeting come about? Were you, like, at a con or something? I mean, uh, or... Because I just always kind of assumed that you guys must just be, like, a gaming group who kind of uh, decided to put some some capital behind what you were doing at home. Uh, well, what was the origin story there? Yeah, it st- actually started with me playing Apocalypse World with Petter, Marco, and another guy in the company... Uh, and this was even before the company was created, so we just played for fun. And then I had uh, this idea that I wanted to test to play this old 90s horror game cult with uh, the Apocalypse World system. And I convinced the other ones to play with me, and we, we we thought it was kind of brilliant, so we just started playtesting. And I kind of traveled around uh, on different conventions in Sweden, and played with different people and I started like sharing the rules with people and uh, more and more people got interested and uh, the product kind of just grown into the game it is today. I think it was a it was like an 8 year process to create this game. Oh my god, that is crazy. I was not anticipating that at all. So essentially what you're saying is is that this beautiful hardcover book that I have right here started out as like a homebrew campaign hack yeah so that you could play your like beloved 90s game kind of like more in the now yeah yeah and, and then you oh that's so crazy dude and I, I think that's one of the reasons a lot of the like rule mechanics are kind of stable because we have been playing so much with them they are like the result of hard gains and small modifications over a long time. So it's not something we just rush to get together to get out the game. Wow. Okay. Well, shit. 
uh, let's go. Let's kind of start talking about PBTA then a little bit. So you were playing Eclipse Phase with them. And uh, I mean, this is that Eclipse Phase is just like notoriously technical. It's like one of the most technical games I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and uh, you brought to them this PBTA hack. Now, so what's your experience and your background with PBTA, and um, how did they kind of receive it? Kind of, let's let's talk about that genesis for a minute. Like, where are you coming from with uh, Powered by the Apocalypse? Well, I started playing uh, uh, the first version of Apocalypse World when it came out. It was kind of... Uh, even then, Sweden was kind of into role-playing games and the indie scene. And uh, even if we didn't produce any game uh, internationally at that time, uh, the Swedish role-playing scene was really into the American games. So we had a lot of information and... Uh, I think I started reading about it at uh, different forums in Sweden and then I just ordered it directly from Vincent Baker like in, was it 2000, 2010 or 2008? I don't remember really when it was. Oh uh, yeah, me neither. So, then I started playing it like constantly for two years until I moved to Gothenburg and got in contact with uh, Petr and the gang and uh, at that point, I was kind of preaching Apocalypse World to people. So I was like traveling around, meeting new groups and le- teaching out Apocalypse World because I thought the the system and the philosophy was so so brilliant uh, compared to so many other games I've played. So. And what did they say, uh, uh, Peter and Marco, when you showed them? Uh, Apocalypse World was that the first that they had seen it did you have to kind of like bring them around or were they aware of it already yeah I think they have heard they had heard about it but they had never tested it so Marco was really interested and uh, actually me and Marco started playing with some other guys but those guys were really hard to like get together so Marco told me okay Robin can you come and play with me and some friends of mine and then he invited me to play with Petter and other guys and I remember Marco really liked it from the beginning. And he was like, wow, this is really cool. Petter was kind of almost a little bit suspicious against the system. Because for him, it was a lot of new things. And he didn't really get how things were working. Or we had to play it a while before he suddenly started to to take in the changes and uh, understand why how it was kind of revolutionizing the the role-playing scene at that time it takes a minute with uh powered by the apocalypse i mean uh when i first read it i felt like oh yeah i get it i understand this is i mean this is just blah 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 it's just role-playing you know but once you get in there and you actually start rolling dice and stuff it's 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 a different approach to the entire experience am i right yeah and i i also think when you're playing it as a player you don't see the structure behind everything you have to to game master it in order to actually understand how much changes have been made in apocalypse world compared to like vampire or uh, Shadowrun or another like typical traditional RPG. So many things that have been cut away and so many things that have been changed in order to help the game master to create interesting stories. 
That is fascinating. That is a fascinating take. Now, um, you it sounds kind of like the genesis of this came from uh, uh, Apocalypse World exclusively. When you were going through this creative phase of building Cult with a PBTA kind of chassis, were other were you experimenting with other PBTA games, or, or, or subsequently have you? And then how did that affect the design process? Yeah, I, have, I played um, Monster Hearts. I tested out. I played uh, Saga of the Icelanders. Uh, and also I have read a lot of hacks, uh, different hacks uh, from the different forums. So I think... Uh, and also I, I, I was inspired by... Uh, some other games I liked at that time, like uh, Technoir. I really liked the way they were kind of creating uh, uh, noir stories by just connecting uh, different objects and places and things together. So I was really inspired by that when I was uh, taking the system with like intrigue maps and everything. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating that you point that out because it's like, first of all, I've never, I've never heard anybody reference Tech Noir. That blows my mind. I was about to say, so what's in Tech Noir that you really like? And then I started, th- you started saying the intrigue maps, and immediately I could picture them from the cult book in my head. Yeah. So tell us more about that. Well, you know, in in Tech Noir, you are, uh, I think you have these kind of uh, tables with different objects, persons. Uh, places, events and uh, when you create a story in that game each player chooses uh, or I think you actually roll like uh, some of these uh, kind of put them on the intrigue map and then you kind of put the, the characters on that intrigue map in order to create uh, an investigative uh, story uh, and it's kind of a mix of improvising and uh, table generating. It's kind of cool. I like it a lot. That that's awesome, man. That is awesome. That that is a solid reference. Uh, what what other games? Were there any other games? Uh, of course, the, the original cult have uh, inspired a lot. I tried to actually take the things I thought was cool with the original system, and kind of convert them into powered by the apocalypse like uh, disadvantages advantages uh, and uh, the system's take on horror and divinity and everything so uh, well you know what that's perfect that actually segues into some of my next questions really really cleanly um, all right, so let's kind of crack open some of the mechanic here now first of all one of the ways that cult deviates from a sort of, I say traditional Powered by the Apocalypse game, but even Powered by the Apocalypse games are so non-traditional that it's like, it's hard to even say that's (laughs) almost like an oxymoron. But uh, I I think when people think of Powered by the Apocalypse, they usually think of the 2D6, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Colt Colt uses a 2D10. Yeah. Uh, Now... Mathematically, this introduce this introduces some interesting some interesting problems, some interesting sort of conundrums. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about about the two D ten in Colt? Absolutely. Uh, well, there's several reasons for us changing from two D six to two D ten. From the first uh, campaigns we were playing, 
uh, Wii's 2D6. So it was not decided from the beginning. But um, in the Cult of Interlust, we have um, three levels of uh, archetypes or playbooks, you could say. Uh, you have sleepers, which are like the blind, normal humans. They are unknowing of everything horrible in the world. And then we have aware archetypes, which is like the typical uh, play character. Uh, they suspect something is wrong. They have experienced bad things and they are they have certain advantages and disadvantages that they, they are affecting them in the world. And then we have a third layer that we only kind of presenting a little bit in the Coral book but are going to expand a lot in uh, coming books. And these are the enlightened archetypes. And those guys, they are kind of tuned with the supernatural things in the cult universe. They are usually magicians and monsters and humans that have transformed beyond the normal humans. Uh, so in order to have three levels of archetypes, you also need to have higher intervals uh, between the modifications and attributes. And with 2d6, you can't really do that because there's a there's a threshold. You can't go over a certain level, like plus 4, I think, and then you succeed on every rule. But with 2d10, you can actually go up to plus 5 without problem. So that's one of the reasons that you can actually increase your attributes higher with a 2d10, which means you can have an extra level of uh, archetypes. The other reason for using 2d10 are more of a symbolic one or metaphorical. Uh, in Cult Divinity Lost, we have uh, the so called higher powers. They are connected to the Sephiroth and the Clifford from the Kabbalah. There are 10 uh, uh, Archons. Uh, and there are 10 death angels, the shadows of the archons. And these higher powers are in some way connected to the 2d10. So you have two dices, uh, one for the archons and one for the uh, death angels. Each uh, 10, the result of 10. So um, it, it looks fine and it's connecting well with the attributes and everything else. And and two D tens like really fun to roll also right I mean like two D ten are great I mean I was I was excited about uh, the two D ten mechanic when I saw it in the Kickstarter yeah um now so so this is that's a really interesting answer to the question because and I and I really like it because um especially the uh, the way that it allows characters that are essentially like higher orders of power later in the game, right? Or that it allows you to kind of curate your um, your sense of uh, power level, kind of like scope in the game. Because you're completely right. Like, by the time you're hitting in PPTA, by the time you're hitting a plus three, you're basically like awesome. By the time you're hitting a plus four, statistically, it's like almost anomalous for you not to 
for you for you to fail at anything, right? And 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 the possibility of overwhelming success is is very very uh, prescient. Um, now, I was actually talking to Mark Diaz Truman about the sort of like bell curve on two D six, and and the way that two D six compares against two D ten, and uh, he was kind of like warning me against two D ten because when you start building like a PBTA attribute array. The uh, bell curve, while it mirrors the bell curve of the 2D6, it's a little bit more swingy because of, because of the enhanced granularity. And then um, the attributes, the, when you're talking about the plus one, minus one, plus zero, really, I think he, he, he showed me like a, a, a statistical map of it. And he was like, these attributes are sort of like non-factors when you roll. Like they don't really matter all that much. Uh, it, they move the curve slightly, but the curve kind of remains. He's like, the curve doesn't really change until you start getting plus two beyond, right? Uh, so for the thing that like I was working on with him, it didn't make sense. But when you put it like that, it makes sense perfectly for Colt. Um, now, that kind of inherent swinginess that's in the 2D10, and this was kind of my take when I looked at it, was uh, the original cult was based on the basic role-playing system, right? So it had, like, a lot of percentile in it. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, like, maybe that the, the 2D10 was there to give you the feeling of rolling that percentile. Does, does that come across in the game? Was that ever, like, uh, a factor in it? No. The, the original system... Uh most of the Swedish games from the 90s have the same uh, D20 system where you're like rolling under a value between 1 and 19 or something. But but in the original cult you have like 100 skills, I guess. It's more like Call of Cthulhu and uh, you're shitty in most of them and you have like some, you have some value in that you can actually succeed with. But Comparing the cult of the lost with the old one, I think actually the, the success rate is a lot higher in this game. But usually, when people compare them, uh, they are thinking about the success with complications as failures, and only like count the the this total successes as uh, good rolls. And I would say a normal role in, in Cultivant Lost is uh, uh, between uh, 10 and 14. So you have to get used with the complications. But uh, that's also one of the most funniest things with the system, I think. So, uh, Right, right. I think the PBTA is really firing on all cylinders when you're hitting the success with complication. I yeah. mean, that, that's kind of what ends up driving the mechanic of the moves snowballing or whatever is you need to be hitting those success with complication, which essentially allows the game master to be firing moves. Exactly. And you don't want a game session where the players only roll successes. That's kind of boring when they just steamroll through everything. So, especially not in horror. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, The sort of like omnipresent uh, uh, potential for failure 
uh, is one of the things that makes horror kind of saucy. Not to mention the fact that, like, I, I really believe that in a horror scenario, the, the, the players should always feel like they're on their back foot. It, it shouldn't be like a traditional power fantasy where they, where they feel kind of like godlike and in control. Like part of the, the thrill of, of playing a horror game is the, is the absence of control. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I, I also think a lot of like horror players have a certain like masochist. They want to play weak characters in order to subject themselves to failure and like pain. So instead of creating characters in control, they're really good at what they're doing. They want to play those guys that can't fight for shit. That you have to flee every time and and just like run around scared. And it, some way you can say that that by doing that you are kind of welcoming the horror, because letting go of control is kind of the point when playing a horror game. That's brilliant. I love that. I love that. So um, let's kind of discuss uh, disadvantages really quickly. I think that disadvantages, when you're when you're looking at the PBTA system as it's outlined in Cult, there's two aspects of it that I think are really kind of um, radical departures from what you find in other PBTA games. And the first of those is disadvantages and the second is how you how you get your moves so let's kind of start with disadvantages now the way that the disadvantages are written is kind of blows my mind because it's like an inverted move yeah where where maximum success is that nothing happens is that you do not trigger the disadvantage but then the lower you roll then the move is triggered at like a higher and higher level in a certain way. Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. Uh, well, one of the points of disadvantages is to, to just let the player rule in order to avoid this bad shit happening. And by letting the player rule and tell you the result, uh, you know the player know something is going to happen. And there's a great psychological effect when you're playing horror uh, by letting the player know that bad shit is going to happen. For example, if you're rolling for your enemy and uh, you roll uh, a failure and you know the, the, the game master is uh, going to have several holes for that enemy and uh, they're going to happen terrible things. This session, or maybe next session, you don't know when the gamers are going to spend them. Uh, then the player will be on the edge in every scene because she will kind of wait for the game master to spend those holes. And um, well, the system is kind of inspired by uh, the moves moon juggling and uh, the horde for the hoarder in Apocalypse World. Because uh, I always found those uh, play moves really fun to roll for because of the the bad shit that was going to happen if the player missed the roll. Interesting. Now, I think that maybe in PBTA kind of like circles, it might be kind of controversial that on the 15 plus with a disadvantage, nothing happens. (laughs) Yeah. 
But so 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 because some some people have a PBTA kind of like philosophy that says something always needs to happen on the roll. So so what what would you say to that? Well, I would say that these rules are more of problem generators. Uh, so nothing happens in this case is th- that means nothing happens just now. But they're gonna happen in the future. Uh, well, it's different when the player wants to trigger a normal player move or advantage and have like agenda with the move. Then, but in the case of uh, disadvantages, you're ruling for the disadvantages, not for the the player character's own agenda. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um. So next, let's kind of move on to the way that the character is constructed in Colt. So you have these kind of pre-built like archetypes that are similar to playbooks, but they're not really like playbook playbooks. They're really more kind of um, uh, almost like ex- example characters, at least the way I read them. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but th- but they, they feel kind of like example characters if you were to use the... Um, the character creation uh, rules that are presented in the book. Um, and it allows you to do this kind of uh, uh, like a la carte sort of picking of the moves that interest you and that want to, that you want to like build into your character. Now your more typical PBTA game has a very, very focused playbook that has very specific moves that are only for that playbook. And then there's maybe a way to for a different playbook to snatch one of those moves on a long enough timeline. But the big kind of like advantage of Powered by the Apocalypse is often perceived in its ability to generate kind of like very specific tones by building very, very specific playbooks. So what is the design principle in kind of breaking that up and making it a bit more kind of like player facing in a certain way? From the beginning, uh, both the disadvantages and the advantages in the playbooks were set from the beginning. But later on when I played like, I don't know how many stories, I, I felt that in order to be able to play the the archetypes again and again in, in, in interesting ways. I wanted to lock up the possibility to choose whichever disadvantages you wanted. Uh, still, advantages are actually locked. And uh, even if some of them repeats between playbooks, there are some certain ones uh, that are special that, that kind of repeats between different. Usually each uh, archetype have uh, a number of uh, unique uh, advantages that uh, actually works exactly like player moves in uh, Apocalypse World. And those are usually really affecting the story in different ways. It can be that a detective had the the possibility to investigate crime scenes or that uh, an artist had the possibility to uh, affect uh, people with his art or actually affect monsters which is art so but I believe even if the archetypes in Cultivate the Lost is broader in a sense than uh, for example playbooks in Apocalypse World they all have a certain team 
they bring to the story. And usually when you play with them, you'll notice that those themes are kind of reappearing each time a player uses them. They are not really connected to professions. So for example, you can play a musician that aren't an artist. You can, for example, choose the playbook The Doll if you want your musician or the story around the musician to focus more about people's uh, people's wish to own the artist than the artist's uh, possibility to, to create art. So, and you can make a policeman, for example, that aren't a detective but have another playbook, for example, a veteran, if you want the police officer to be more of a violent nature and the story focusing more on, on the violence around him. And that's a big difference from uh, Apocalypse World because a battle babe is a battle babe. You are the battle babe. In Cultivating the Lost, the archetypes are more about uh, the themes and ingredients of the horror story you're going to tell. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. So that you're kind of like weaving um, like certain motifs into the fabric of the story rather than playing a profession or a role or uh, uh, kind of like a, a trope, a trope from a genre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know it's... Some archetypes are also more specialized and have certain disadvantages that are locked to them that you have to choose. For example, the Avenger have always the disadvantage uh, sworn uh, revenge. So that character must have something she wants to, to get revenge on because that's the focus of that archetype. For example, awesome, awesome. So, so how has that been received as you've taken it around? You say you've been working on the game for like eight years, and you've taken it to cons, and you've you've played it, you've play tested it with like a lot of people. Uh, how has the game been received between people who are powered by the apocalypse fans, and then how has it been received by people who maybe aren't as familiar with that game and are more like traditional role players? I believe. Traditional role players playing cult, uh, most of them actually really like it. But you know, it's it's kind of an awakening if you play a Powered by the Apocalypse game the first time. And I think also Cult of Interlost kind of, it's a lot better on hiding the indie influence and kind of tricking the players to think they are playing a uh, normal game than, uh, for example, uh, Apocalypse World that are more focused in its narrating techniques and uh, have a more space for player influence. So I think uh, you can play Cult of the Lost without even knowing that you're playing an indie game. At the same time, of course, that means that some of the indie gamers probably are going to be disappointed because the game aren't uh, indie enough or like weird enough or artsy enough or uh, exploring the, the the boundaries enough but at the same time 
I believe uh, if you play the game like me, you can play it really like improvised. Or you can play it more traditional in a sense with uh, written scenarios and uh, more of a game master uh, uh, control. Uh, that's not why I have intended for the system. It's possible to do it because of some changes we have been doing with system. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question, which is uh, I already talked to Petter about uh, some like possible future books that are kind of on the horizon, they're in development. Um, what can we look forward to in terms of like new uh, systems being developed in the game? Like, what what are you working on to uh, kind of like bring some of these like higher tier games and just uh, new stuff into Cold? Yeah, the, the game uh, have been uh, released. So uh, I don't know; it was uh, like six months ago or something. The game came out mm-hmm. in stores. So we are not going to like give you new rules already. But uh, the first thing I'm focusing on now is like a player's companion with a lot of uh, good advice for creating characters, things to think about uh, when playing a book for the players, because I think that is really needed to just have something for the game also to hand out to the players and say, read this and you'll understand the game. And uh, what you're supposed to do when you're playing it. Uh, and then we have some really cool ideas, things that are on the work that will come later. I can't really go into the details already, but it will be announced in time. I promise that. Oh, that's that. That is fair, but very peaking. Very exciting. <laughs> very exciting. Um. So was there anything kind of like before we move on from the systems talk, was there anything that you brought over from the previous editions of Cult uh, that you felt like you had to get in there? And was there anything in particular that you felt like you absolutely had to leave behind uh, for those who are familiar with the old game? Yeah, the the most important things to bring over from the old Cult was Dark Secrets and uh, Disadvantages. And those two things are the things you're building stories on in the new cult. Uh, Disadvantages we have already been talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the old version you just you choose them. They didn't have such a big rule impact on you but there were still like things dark things happening. The game also could use them for uh, letting bad things happening. And the dark secrets are more like past events that the playing character have been experienced and they uh, are now affecting his his life in the story. The difference between the, the Cult of the Lost and the early versions is that instead of just putting in dark secret and disadvantages as a cool stuff, you know, just something you want to have there because it makes the character cool, we build the stories around the dark secrets and the disadvantages. So if you, for example, choose to be guilty of a crime, then the horror story will be centered around the crime you committed, your guilt, and the consequences today. It could, for example, be as the first the first ever scenario I've ever played with uh, the first version of the cult hack with uh, 
powered by the apocalypse rules. It was a story about three friends in New York. I think it was a priest, a fixer and a gangster. No, it was a, a, a fixer, a priest and a, a man working with uh, uh, ads. So, uh, and uh, these three friends had all uh, been involved in a crime when they were kids. And now when the story started, uh, this kind of spirit or creature monster started kind of taking contact with them again. Uh, to get revenge for leaving them or leaving the, the spirits like 10 years ago. And it was really, really successful. Everyone like loved it. And uh, I think that's the basis for Cultivate Lost. To always ground every story in the character's past. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That sounds fucking great, man. Um, wow. Uh have you found over the course of the development that there is a a better style of playing the game is it more suited to kind of like one shots or short short little 3 to 4 sessions or campaigns or does it perform equally well under all conditions because i feel like a lot of pbta material is really aimed at that kind of one shot to four shot campaign kind of kind of arc you yeah. know i would what, say what do you think yeah i would say that a typical cult story if you just play it uh, as i uh, set it up in the coral book you could probably play a story of between five and uh, uh, ten play sessions but after that uh, depending on the, uh, the events in the story you could also uh, advance the characters and kind of change the story into something else. But I, I would believe that after 10 sessions, you're usually in a point in the game where you can find a really satisfying ending. Awesome. <clears throat> awesome. Awesome. So um, when, when you yourself are running, and I think... Uh, I think this is probably going to be our last question. So when you when you yourself are sitting down to run Colt, like what do you do? How do you prep? Like what is what is what is from the mouth of one of the key designers and and really the developer of the core system, what is the best way to run Colt? How do you do it? Well, my first advice is to listen to the players. Do not prepare the story yourself because then you are missing out a lot of the good things about using the system. So my recommendation is to sit down with your players. You can have some inspiration, some ideas you want to discuss with them, but then start discuss together with the players where do we want to play when do we want it to to the story to happen? Uh, which kind of archetypes do we want to use? Is it this a story like about? Is it about kids on the street in the seventies Harlem, or is it a story about uh, powerful politicians in uh, London today? 
Is it uh, a story in Kowloon City in the 70s? Or is it uh, a research uh, assistance at a research base out in the Arctis? You need to like find the setting first. And then you start discussing dark secrets. Uh, and by doing so and listening to your players, you will also get the stuff you need to create horror because the players will tell you what they want to be in a story and what things they think is interesting and will uh, scare them. So if the player tell you they want their character to be haunted by a ghost, that means the player wants the story to have a ghost in it. And uh, that's a great way to listening in and let the players do a lot of the work for you. Awesome, man. I love it. Well, Robin, I really appreciate you taking the time at your your busy schedule. I guess one last one last thing. So you just you just did Goth GothCon last weekend, right? In Gothenburg. Yeah. yeah. Do you, and, and it seems like you do uh, GothCon a lot. Does, is that is that a good con for you guys? Uh, GothCon is the the convention. I I think I've been role uh, playing Coulter since I started the hack. Uh, some years it's haven't been like a big uh, official thing. I've been just walking around and playing with people that are interested. Um, trying out both more experimental things when we've been playing like longer stories with different play groups and uh, improvised things where the players just create something and I see what, what happens. This year... Uh, I wrote a prepared scenario with very open endings and uh, some interesting background story. Uh, but uh, so for me, it's nowadays it's a lot of work. But I know we started in Gothenburg, so we'll probably attend Gothcon as long as we can. I think. Awesome, awesome. Well, you heard that here, cultists. If you wanna get on the ground floor, some of that cult experience. Put uh, Gothcon on your on your agenda and uh, be looking for Helmgast at Gothcon because that is where it's at. Well, Robin, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you. Uh, I know that you've been super busy and that you like just closed closed up doing an interview and then just came right over to this interview and that you were at a con last weekend. You're probably exhausted. <laughs> um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about the game today. Thank you so much. Thank you yourself. I really appreciate talking with you also. Anytime, anytime. And uh, cultists, uh, uh, Helmgast and uh, Petter and Robin have been so kind as to send us copies of uh, Cult Divinity Lost, the core book, and some postcards. And this is your last chance to get one. They sent us three. This is the third one. Go on our Instagram, find out what you can do to enter to win your very own copy of Cult Divinity Lost, shipped to your house, free of charge. We'll cover all of that. We want to get this game in your hands. We want to get you playing so that you can then go out and convert other people and bring them in not only to just horror gaming, not only to the experience of horror gaming, but to Cult Divinity Lost. So, um, again... Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Petter. Thank you, uh, Helmgast. It's been super great. Uh, And thanks again, everybody, for tuning in and listening. We appreciate you always. Have a good night.